Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is certainly in the providence of God that we are at this chapter at this time, this passage at this time, uh, on the day that we observe the Lord's Supper. This, that wasn't planned uh, at all. And it's just this, another sweet thing that the Lord has done uh, in my life as kind of a reassurance from time to time. I don't know if you have things like that, but that you're on course when you uh, teach through the book of 1 Corinthians and you land on verses 23 through 34, um, right on the, the monthly pattern of observing the Lord's Supper together. That is the Lord's doing and not mine. I'm not that good uh, at planning those things out. I didn't know if last week I was going to be done. Uh, and of course, you probably all knew that there was no way I was going to be done last week. But uh, this week we get to look at verses 23 through 34 in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to look at a couple of other passages in the Bible to make sure we understand what's going on, make some observational points, and then observe the Lord's Supper together. Pastor Steve will lead us in that. So let's read beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So we are going to begin by looking a little bit at the Passover, even as that last phrase lingers a little bit. And, uh, it, when I read it, I always think of uh, my dad, uh, when he would call me, uh, being away from home, and say, hey, make sure you do this, that, or this, or your mom says you've been doing this wrong. And you know, I don't know if any of you ever had a, a dad who would get a report from mom that you had been doing something wrong, and he would always set the urgent things in matter over the phone, and then he might say something like, we'll talk about this later, you know? <laughs> well, apparently the Corinthian church has a few things that Paul will be discussing with them later, but this is one of the more pressing needs, the Lord's Supper and how it should be observed. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. I told you last week that the Lord's Supper, which can seem very strange if you are new to the church, new to Christianity, I told you that the Lord's Supper 
is the fulfillment of something that began at the Passover in Egypt. So if you remember back to the stories that you've heard about the man Moses. Moses was commissioned by God to go to the land of Egypt and to tell Pharaoh that he should let God's people Israel go from their captivity out into the wilderness where they might serve him. And Pharaoh was rebellious to this and God was determined to make an example of Pharaoh and of Egypt as well as Egypt's gods. And this it, this uh, culminated in ten plagues, the tenth of which was the promised destruction of the firstborn of all the house of Egypt. Israel itself was to be spared from this destruction of the firstborn, except there was a requirement made of them in order to experience this salvation on this one night in Egypt. The angel of the Lord, an angel of judgment, would go through Egypt on one night and slay all the firstborn of Egypt. Animals too. And Israel would be spared. The Hebrew people would be spared. But only if they practiced this one observance. And here we have now chapter 12 verse 1 of Exodus. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of, poor, of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. I love this, by the way, as you read the Old Testament law. God always makes provision for the poor. They're never to be left out for lack of resource. When it is time later to institute the sacrifices at the temple, there are cheaper, more affordable sacrifices for the poor to purchase doves, pigeons, things like that. Little birds. Here, if your household can't afford a lamb, go in with your neighbor and together buy a lamb. Observe it together. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, another accommodation, by the way. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Keep it within the home, a little lamb. Not everyone in Israel was a shepherd. <laughs> they did not have outdoor facilities for every little lamb. This lamb was kept for five days within the home. A little lamb, one year old or less, without blemish. Can you imagine, those of you with children, what would happen over the course of a week with a little lamb, a little goat, dancing around in your home? Have you ever seen a baby goat? I have. I see Natasha smiling back there. Natasha's seen quite a few baby goats. They are cute. <laughs> they are adorable. They are unique. There's nothing quite like a little lamb or a little goat. It's not like a puppy. You know, puppies are always chewing on things and gnawing around. And, you know, this is, not that there's no similarity, but this is unique. 
What would happen in a household with a baby goat for a week? You would grow attached. You shall keep it until the 14th day of that same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And you must pause there and detach yourself from what you know is to come in the life of Jesus and imagine yourself as an Israelite in the land of Egypt and ask yourself, how absurd and cruel does this sound? It is not just an animal sacrifice. It is a baby animal sacrifice. It's not just an animal sacrifice. It's a baby animal sacrifice of the most gentle kind. The least ferocious. It is not just a baby gentle lamb. But one that you would first keep in your home by command. For a week. What is going on? That God would command this lamb to be killed at twilight after five days. Verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood that pours from this little baby lamb. And put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat. What a gross observance. Is something mystical happening here? Is some pagan thing being converted to Christianity here? Should we assume some magical property to the blood of little lambs? Some occult-like ritual where blood is smeared on wood? No. The Lord is foreshadowing something years and years ahead into the future. And he is foreshadowing it in a way that could not possibly be deciphered here in the time of the children of Israel in Egypt, but something that would be unmistakably recognizable when it happened. Jesus, as John the Baptist proclaimed, three years before his death, John proclaimed, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, born not of a man, but of God and woman, lived a sinless, spotless life without blemish. Jesus, the firstborn of our holy God, shed his blood, splattered on the beams and the post of a cross as a sacrifice for sin. Verse 8, Then they shall eat the flesh on the night. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. It's not a happy, joyful feast. It's a somber thing when you think about it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. This is not meant to be tenderized. It's not meant to be... It's meant to... Be roasted in fire. And when you think of fire, what do you think of? God's judgment? 
Jesus satisfying the wrath of God? What would become of you and I if not for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? We would find eternity in a place of eternal fire. Verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning. It must be wholly consumed either by you or as verse 10 says, you shall burn what remains with fire. Thus you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. God is coming. What a frightening thing. In Egypt, we get a picture of what happens when a holy God visits sinful men and women. God is passing through a land deserving of judgment. And He will pass over those who by faith look to the blood of the Lamb. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Friends, let us not mistake God's slowness to anger or His great long-suffering with you and I. Let's not mistake God's forbearance with sin and evil in our world with His approval or with His ignorance or with any sort of lack of concern. Jonah in chapter 4 of his book, as we read in Sunday school this morning, frustrated with God for sparing the city of Nineveh, says, Lord, this is why I didn't want to come here in the first place, for I know that you are a gracious God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. But when God determines to judge sin at an appointed time and place, that Holiness of God results in total destruction. God's wrath is slowly kindled. But when the time for judgment comes, let Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a representation. When He comes in holiness, His holiness demands that there be no sin left unjudged or else we don't serve a holy God. We serve a God of personal preference and biased discretion. That is not our God. Our God is righteous and holy and only those who are righteous and holy can stand before Him. 
He will visit Egypt. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. <laughs> and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. <laughs> God himself is doing the personal evaluation of every household in Egypt. <laughs> he doesn't send some messenger to report it back. He comes with the judgment of death for every home. But when he sees the blood of a lamb applied to a household, he is determined to pass over. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, in verses 14 through 20, he institutes a memorial that should be practiced every year in Israel on occasion to celebrate what he is ready to do. And we won't read it this morning. I don't have time. But look to verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. That's a big word. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you what do you mean by this service? Ever have a child ask that sort of question before? Why do we do this? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. This is the Passover feast that is being celebrated as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus enters into Jerusalem being celebrated on the day of the selection of the lambs. And you can see symbolically the people praising Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord during the triumphal entry as the selection of God's lamb being approved. And at the end of the week, 
when he is betrayed and crucified and dies at twilight, mind you. When they should kill the lamb is when Jesus dies on the Passover. It is the fulfillment of what had been ordained in the land of Egypt. And I would remind you to consider more carefully what the Lord told Moses originally when he sent him down to Egypt in the first place. He said, tell Pharaoh that he must let my firstborn son go. And I would suggest to you that God in his plan when he looked at Israel suffering in Egypt, saw, saw not only a people being abused and mistreated, but saw in those people the coming of his son who would fulfill the promise of redemption made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and was determined to deliver him that he might one day deliver us all. And he gives them this Passover in this climactic judgment of a tenth plague that they should be spared at the blood of a lamb. And then centuries later, he comes at the appointed time spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And Christ himself is offered as the sinless, spotless lamb of God. His blood painted on the post and the lintel of the cross. Whereby if we by faith look to that sacrifice of God's Lamb. God will see the blood of Jesus Christ. And he will pass over the very destruction that belongs to you and I for the sinners that we are. What did Israel do to deserve being passed over? Surely nothing. At various points, even as God administers their salvation through these plagues in Egypt, they get frustrated and want Moses and Aaron to leave. God doesn't spare them because they merit it, because they've earned it. He spares them because they have trusted in a salvation that he has promised them. And the demonstration of that trust is this lamb with its blood on the doorpost. And if it be there, and if they be inside, he will be faithful to his promise regardless of the sinners inside. And it is the same covenant God would make with you and I. If you look to the sacrifice of Jesus... To save poor sinners from damnation that they deserve. He will pass over your life in judgment. And he will deliver you to a promised land far greater than the one he delivered even Israel. He will deliver you to a land of eternal inheritance. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. After hundreds of years of Israel in the promised land, observing the Passover, they have wandered away into idolatry and God through the prophet Jeremiah promises something new. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31. 
Here is the same God that spoke in Exodus, speaking to the same people centuries later. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In the peak of Israel's rebellion against God, he tells them there is a day coming when I will put my law in their hearts instead of on a paper for them to memorize. And there is a day coming when rather than admonishing each other to know the Lord, every one of them will know me. And the grounds for this personal relationship with God is that He will forgive their iniquity and their sin they will remember no more. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes in verse 23. We'll read 23, 24, and 25. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here the Passover is being fulfilled in the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And rather than an annual observance, he, he commands that it be observed often. I have three points about this. First, God should want no covenant with me. <laughs> I am not the kind of person that God should look down from heaven and decide that he would, I'll enter into a, an agreement with Reggie. I am a sinner. I make half-hearted commitments all the time. I fail routinely. Even as a Christian, I have promised to serve the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love my neighbor as myself. How often do I break that promise? 
How often must I course correct? Let's be clear. God should want no covenant with me. I mean, I don't know who he should want a covenant with. But presumably someone who would be worthy of it. Someone who would offer him something of value. Someone who would keep it. If God would have a covenant with me, the strength, the binding part of that covenant is going to have to be His responsibility. When we write contracts, which are covenants with one another, and we sign our names, built into every contract is some clause, some section, that tells us what will happen, when and if it's broken. If God had written a covenant to establish it with me that could be broken, I would have broken it. I would have broken it last week. I don't know why God would want a covenant with me. But surely any covenant that he has with me is going to have to be upheld on his end. Not dependent upon me meeting all sorts of circumstances. I will fail to meet them. I will drop the ball. I drop the ball in my marriage all the time. I drop the ball with my children. I'm half-hearted in my work. I fail as a pastor. If there is a clause in God's covenant by which my fellowship with Him is broken, my inheritance with Him is jeopardized, and I now fall under condemnation because of my violation, if that clause existed, I would be futile in the first place to even enter into this contract. I would break it. But not only has God made a covenant to establish it with me, He has made it a covenant with no clause for breaking. He has made it a covenant totally dependent on Him. Notice, it's not my blood that establishes this covenant. It's His. It doesn't depend on me sweating and shedding great drops of blood out of devotion to Him. It's all Him. Why? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's why. Because God loves us. That's why. Because God loved Adam and Eve. And in the garden would rather forbear their sin and the sin and destruction and corruption of all the generations of them that would follow than destroy them hopelessly into eternal hell. God loves you. 
The second thing we should see in these three verses is this is a command to remember and do this thing. This is a command. The body of Christ is commanded to assemble and do this. Now it is what I would call a gracious command. Without timetables and strict legal applications for how frequently it must be done. But it is a a command. Make no mistake about it. It is a command on par with baptism. In fact, the Lord left us with two direct ordinances, two direct religious observations commanded to be observed, baptism and His Supper. And if you are not observing the Lord's Supper faithfully, you are in violation of this command. It is sin. Third observation. The body and blood of Jesus are real at the cross and symbolized here for remembrance. When Jesus holds up a piece of bread, whatever size. And he says, this is my body. He's not handing pieces of his flesh to his disciples. No earnest reading of the gospel accounts of this in Matthew, Mark, or Luke could possibly be interpreted as Peter, James, John, Matthew sitting around thinking, oh, When he hands us this piece of bread, it's magically turning into real flesh in my mouth. Can we stop the nonsense? That was the great question of many of the reformers. Can we stop the nonsense here? There are some who identify as Christians who believe that when you observe the Lord's Supper here, That when you put it in your mouth or when it's blessed at a certain time, it physically transforms into the actual body and blood of Jesus, which is gruesome. That's not what this is. It is enough to say that it was a real body and real blood of the real one and only Son of God at the cross. And we should remember that. Verse 26. Those were three points around 23, 24, and 25. God should want no covenant with me. We have a command to remember this. And the body and blood are real at the cross and symbolized here. Now verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And then three little words at the end. That make this a big deal. You proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. This Passover, this fulfillment in the Lord's Supper of the Passover is not yet in its final state. Because Jesus will return for me. He will fulfill the covenant promises He has made to me. And then He will continue on with the balance of the covenant promises in Jeremiah 31 that we did not read. But until He comes, this is what we do. 
Now, verses 27 through 34. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Just let that sink in for a second. Whoever does this in an unworthy way will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, in a sense, we can all acknowledge Every one of us do this in an unworthy way. In a sense. I'm a sinner. I am guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. But clearly Paul is emphasizing something that Steve calls us to meditate on every time we observe the Lord's Supper. There is a way, even for forgiven sinners, to do this casually and foolishly and understand it's not just foolishness when they do that. It is criminal. It is wrong. Why? I'm glad you asked. Turn back to chapter 10 and just look at verse 16. Here's Paul writing. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we not only have communion with each other, we have communion with Jesus He is here, which is not any different at all from the promise that he makes throughout the rest of the New Testament. For instance, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. This is not just about a religious observance that we celebrate together. This is communion with Jesus. That's Paul's point that he goes on to make in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because you remember, he's talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. And he says, look, when you go to a temple and you engage in one of these idolatry feasts, you're having fellowship with that God. Not that a God is anything, but that's what it's meant to be. So when we have communion, we are fellowshipping with our God. You do this foolishly. You do this casually. You do this unrepentantly. You are insulting the body of blood of Jesus to his face. It's a big deal. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, which is good counsel, period. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not considering, not carefully observing, not discerning. This is representative of the body of Jesus Christ. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Sleep being a euphemism for death. Now, we 
would leap forward and say, wait a minute, are people in our congregation sick and dying because they do this in an unworthy manner? And the best I can say to that is it's possible. But I meet that with a note of praise and joy that we have considered how the Corinthian church was doing this. And it was far different from how we are doing it. And so we might rejoice that Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11 and that the practice of what they were doing has not been repeated in our own fellowship. Because what they were doing was awful. People mistreating one another, even getting drunk. Now, you ask, are people sick and dying because of the way they observe the Lord's Supper here? I certainly hope not. But if your plan and if our practice was to come here and get drunk and put each other down and exclude certain members, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if that's what happened. If I were God, I would not let that go unpunished. Praise God for good practice. Praise God for faithful attention to doctrine in the way we observe our services. Praise God our order of worship matters. Nevertheless, verse 31, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Just good counsel. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Understand what that means. You take this in an unworthy manner like the Corinthians did. God decides to judge you, even takes your life. That discipline is not the forfeiture of salvation. That discipline is God disciplining you so that you will not apostate yourself and forfeit your salvation. Understand, sometimes the Lord taking the life of one of his people is a sweet mercy for what they would do to themselves spiritually if they were left alive. Chew on that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 quotes the Old Testament when it says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, what happens to you when you die? Go to heaven. I don't know who said it over here, but I'm glad they did. That's the worst judgment that the Lord pours out on his people. Heaven. Heaven an expedited trip. Now, it shouldn't be something that we're all plunging ourselves into. I'm not going to pass out Kool-Aid this morning, okay? Because God has called us to be profitable to His kingdom here. And the tragedy of deserving this kind of discipline from God is that our profitability to God's kingdom is done when we die. I mean, we're profitable in, in eternity in ways that have not even been fully described to us. But here on this earth, to fulfill the commission He's given us, we disqualify ourselves by that by way of death. Nevertheless, that is greater than eternal hell. That is preferable to apostasy. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, <laughs> the most basic command, isn't it? Seems almost absurd to us now. Wait for one another. Because <laughs> we know what they were doing from the last time. 
disgorging themselves. The... But if anyone is hungry, see every once in a while somebody say, well, I don't understand why we don't do the Lord's Supper with real big pieces of bread and a real feast and etc., etc. I'm not condemning that, but understand what this says here. That is not the point. The point of the Lord's Supper is not to have a meal. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. <laughs> you know, go eat lunch after the Lord's Supper. Eat breakfast before you come. Let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. The exact opposite of what we're coming together for. We're not coming together for judgment. We're coming together to remember and to celebrate the work of Jesus Christ which is our salvation from judgment. So don't mess this up. And then the ominous phrase, the rest I will set in order when I come. So he spent a few chapters setting some things in order. Apparently there was more to deal with, but not quite as urgent. Now we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in a moment. But I want to just take two minutes you can give me 120 seconds extra here. Football season hasn't begun. Not yet. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't followed him in baptism, if this ordinance like baptism is foreign to you or something that when you partake in it, you merely are going through motions, I want to invite you now to enter into the covenant that Jesus Christ purchased for you with his own blood. Whereby if you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, he will remove before God the Father all of the guilt and all of the judgment pending the guilt. He will bring you into his family he will call you son, daughter. He will be a father to you. He will be faithful to you. He will bring you into eternal life when your time on this earth is done. And there will be no tear there. There will be no anguish, no agony. And you will be with the Lord and his people forever. You'll be given a new body. One uncorrupted, one not falling apart, one not damned. You'll be given new life, life that will never be threatened, life that will never be judged. Your sin will be removed. No more will you even have the inclination to rebel against God and you will be satisfied in Him and what He's given you. Your ambition, your pride, your desires, temptations will no longer get in the way. You wrestle with them here. He provides an escape. But in eternity, He would redeem you forever. What do you have to do? You have to look towards the blood of the Lamb. You have to believe that Jesus Christ and his death on the cross was all that's required for your eternal forgiveness. Knowing you can do none of it yourself. By faith you serve him. Understanding he has purchased your life. 
by way of what he did at the cross. And you look forward to the resurrection that Jesus himself led the way in three days later. It's all by faith. What do you believe? It speaks to the deepest part of who we are. As I push my 120 seconds. What do we believe about who we are? What do I believe about who God is? What do I believe about what will happen to me when I stand before Him? Place your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's let those who are going to serve or Steve come forward and let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your people and their patience with me as I ramble and stumble my way through a text. And Father, I ask that your spirit provides clarity that I often get in the way of. That this morning we have heard a message about the great God that you are. About the love exemplified in your son and the salvation offered to us there. Help us to be worthy of what we observe now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.